This episode of Roadie Radio is brought to you by your local library's Library of Things. Did you know that your library has more than just books and movies? Libraries across Rhode Island lend out all sorts of unconventional items. You can borrow fishing gear, ukuleles, tools, games and puzzles, telescopes, and more. Whether you want to try a new hobby or keep the kids occupied, Ocean State Libraries have what you need. Contact your local library to find out what's in their library of things. You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. I'm your host, Lauren Walker, from the Rhodey Radio crew and Coventry Public Library, and today I'm talking with Alan Gevinson and Karen Cariani, co-directors of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, a collaboration between the Library of Congress and GBH. Hi, Alan and Karen. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Do you want to introduce yourselves and say what your roles are at the AAPB? Sure. Um Hi, Lauren. I'm Alan Gevinson. I'm the special assistant to the chief of the National Audiovisual Conservation Center at the Library of Congress. And I'm also the uh, project director for the library of the AAPB. And I'm Karen Cariani. I'm executive director of the GBH archives in Boston. And I'm GBH's project director for the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. Nice to meet you. It's great to meet you both. <laughs> um, so what is the American Archive of Public Broadcasting and how did it start? Well, it's a collaboration between GBH in Boston and the Library of Congress to preserve and make as accessible as we can public media content, both TV and radio um, from across the country um, to the American public. Um, it's a the collaboration. Um, it's been in 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 process for ten years now, and the collaboration um, splits up the duties such that the Library of Congress is responsible for the long term preservation of the digital files. GBH is mostly uh, responsible for outreach and engagement and access through the website, but we both collaborate together on curation governance, rights and legal issues, and it's very much a collaborative team between um, the two institutions, which has been quite wonderful. Um, Alan, do you want to pick it up? Uh, sure. We So far in the 10 years we've been working together, um, we've been able to digitally preserve more than 150,000 items sent in from more than uh, 400, I think about 435 uh, stations, producers, and archives around the country, including the territories of the U.S. And we've made close to 100,000 of them available online for educational purposes. So you can't download them. They're streaming only. But we, we find that this is a wonderful resource for um, people to learn about communities all over the US. These are many of these are local shows that haven't been seen outside of the communities and even within the communities haven't been seen since broadcast. So we we do think uh, it's a valuable um, archive and and um, yeah, we're very happy to be working on this great project. It's almost evenly split between TV and radio. There's a little bit more TV than the radio at the moment, but it's 
it's a pretty close split between the two. That sounds really important. And, you know, from Roadie Radio's perspective, we can definitely relate to having like small local content and wanting more people to know about it. So, um, yeah, that's really great. Um, why is it so important to archive and preserve public broadcasting content? Well, I think, <laughs> um, I mean, I think public broadcasting is one of the uh, few locally owned stations across the country these days, as opposed to being owned by a corporate network. So it does have a perspective of covering topics that are long lasting and uh, important to our American democracy um, for our citizens to know about. Um, they tend, we tend to, to present the information and let people judge so that information on their own, as opposed to being opinionated. Um, so I think, and it's a uh, cultural, it's news, it's cultural, it's um, social issues, it's history, it's science. Um, I think public media pretty much covers a wide swath of information that is important for people to know about. Now, I'm partial though, right? Coming from the PBS station, so I'll let Alan speak to that issue. Yeah. Um, I would add that generally in, in public media, you find longer conversations. They're not broken up by commercials. You get more in-depth conversations than you might find on uh, commercial radio or television. Um, public media also has been open to um, underrepresented groups producing uh programs for public media. Um, often public media ha has had to be prodded by those groups, but um, there's been a lot of great material um, done by um, uh, African-American groups, by Chicanos, by uh, Native American groups that we preserve in the, in the archive, as well as more mainstream material. And what goes into your archival process? Do you work with already digitized content or do you also work with tangible media like film and cassette tapes? Both, actually. Um, uh, it, it is much easier and quicker for us to grab the digital files if they already exist in a digital format. Um, but we are also helping, We over the past 10 years, we've helped a number of organizations get outside money and grants to digitize their materials. And we currently have a very large Mellon grant to double our collection in the next four years to digitize another 150,000 items from material across the country of um, un marginalized and unrepresented voices, uh, uh, gaps in our collection, states that we don't necessarily have material from, um, uh, material that's at risk, that's deteriorating, um, that needs to be preserved ASAP. That was going to be part of my question too, is, you know, dealing with physical materials. Do you prioritize it by like what needs to be digitized first and kind of go that way? Or does it just come your way whenever it comes your way? Um, I would say it's a mix of decision-making and uh, cura curating which ones we pursue. It's a mix between uh, the, the topic it covers, um, what the material is, um, uh, do we have anything like it, how unique is it, um, how at-risk is it, um, like is it on a one of the formats that is becoming more and more obsolete, like two-inch, one-inch, um, 
film, although might have a longer shelf life than the video and the magnetic tape, um, it still is one of the formats that is easily thrown away because people don't can't view it and don't know what to do with it. So um, I would say it's a it's a mix. What, Alan, do you want to contribute to that? Oh, it definitely is, and and we we often reach out to stations and producers. Um, we go to conferences, meet them, and talk to them about what they have that that might be. Um, worth preserving that we could um, collaborate with them on a, on a grant proposal. Uh, in our own collection at the Library of Congress, we have quite a lot of public uh, broadcasting material that we've acquired over the years. Um, generally, we at the library, we do choose to digitally preserve the most at-risk material first, the two-inch. We've been working on a project the last four or five years to digitize our entire two-inch collection of, of um, public television um, broadcasts going back to the uh, 1960s, maybe even some of these in the 50s, but the 60s onward, we've got a large collection and we've been going through those every year, digitizing them. And when you say um, two inches, is that a size of film? Yeah, I, yes, uh, I guess we should explain. It's, it's, it's videotape. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it was the standard for use for a period of time. Um, Karen probably knows that history better than I do when it went out. I believe in the 80s was when it, it switched over to, to other forms. So the two-inch, uh, there actually aren't even a lot of machines left that can play two-inch. Uh, it's an obsolete format. So luckily, we have machines at the Library of Congress, um, and, and we... Um, get parts from when they uh, break down. We we try to find organizations that might have parts that we could use. So it, it's a it's a battle against time to preserve this material. Um, what are some of your favorite exhibits that you've done in the past for the archive? And what are some new or upcoming exhibits that you're most excited about? I'm gonna let Alan answer that one. We love our exhibits. We have about 19 of them right now, and we're working on eight eight additional ones that should go up this year. Um, one of my favorites is called Freedom Song. It's about the interviews that were conducted for Eyes on the Prize. Eyes on the Prize was a documentary series from the 1980s that came out in two parts, um, and, and um, each part, the first part had six episodes, the second had eight episodes, and it's it's an incredible documentary about the civil rights movement. We have in our archive the complete interviews uh, that were conducted. So maybe a few minutes of somebody got into one of the programs. We've got the full hour or two hour long interview. And we found that those are very, very valuable. So these are people who participated in the movement, historians talking about the movement, uh, people who were in opposition to the movement. And our, our Freedom Song um, exhibit uh, brings it all to life. It tells the backstory of how the Eyes on the Prize uh, documentary came about. It gives you access to um, women in the movement and, and list, uh, has links for all the women who were interviewed. Um, uh, public officials, et cetera. It's, it's, it's got a lot of great uh, ways to approach uh, this topic. 
Here's a clip from the archive from Eyes on the Prize, America, They Loved You Madly, featuring an interview with activist Joanne Robinson. When you look back in history, it looks like the boycott was a spontaneous act provoked by the arrest of Rosa Parks, was it? It was a spontaneous act from those persons who were not members of the Women's Political Council. But we had worked for at least three years getting that thing organized. The night, that the, the night of the evening that Rosa Parks was arrested, Fred Gray called me and told me she was arrested. She had, uh, somebody had gone her bail, but her case would be on Monday. And I, as president of the main body of the Women's Political Council, got on the phone and I called all the officers of the three chapters. I called as many of the men who had supported us as possible. And I told them that Rosa Parks had been arrested and she would be tried. They said, you have the plans, put them into operation. I called every person who was in every school and every place where we had planned to be at that, have somebody at that school or wherever it was at a certain time, that I would be there with materials for them to disseminate. I didn't go to bed that night. I cut those stencils. I ran off 35,000 copies of the little foyer that you uh, have. And uh, I, I distributed them. I had uh, classes from 8 to 10 at the college. And at 10 o'clock, I had two senior students who had agreed to go with me. I took them in my car. The packages were already there. It would take about a half a minute to drive on a school campus. The kids would be there. In just a minute, they would disappear. On, on a similar topic, we did a, a, um, an exhibit called Voices from the Southern Civil Rights Movement that was exclusively radio from the 1960s. So now 60 years old, um, that contemporary with the time, some of these were documentaries that have been long forgotten, but just bring to life what um, the movement was about. Um, a lot of them interview young people, and it's very inspiring to hear them talking um about what they did um we've got a great exhibit on the uh our peabody awards uh material peabody um the peabody awards are a it's still going on but they, they began in the either late 30s or early 40s i think early 40s uh every year awards are given for best um television and radio programs and what we did was we got a grant with the University of Georgia that holds the Peabody Awards archive. We received the grant to digitize their complete collection of public media that was, was submitted for um, consideration. So these, we assume are, they were submitted by stations. We assume that they were what stations considered their best or more important material every year. And so we've made all of those programs now available, and and we've done an exhibit talking about the history of the Peabody Awards and just having various ways to access them. We've made all of the Watergate hearings available online. We've digitized that. I I believe it's the only place on the web that we could uh, that, that that they're available, and we did a wonderful exhibit on the history of public television deciding to broadcast and, and in fact to rebroadcast at night it was a big decision for public broadcasting they decided that the hearings were done during the day and and commercial stations would take turns broadcasting them 
what public broadcasting did was for people who were working during the day could come home at night and at eight o'clock they would show the whole hearings at, at times it would go to two three in the morning but they they devoted um their their broadcasts to these hearings the the people who uh anchored this were Robert McNeil and Jim Lair. And two years later, they started the McNeil Lair Report, which became the PBS NewsHour. So PBS uh, public television showed that they could be an important player nationally in public affairs broadcasting because of, of the Watergate. So, so we have a wonderful exhibit of, that tells this backstory and again, makes it accessible by name of person who who is testifying and by other categories as well um karen anything uh, you want to mention yeah my my favorite exhibit is the one on zoom the children's program um it just it talks about the importance of children's program and zoom in particular where it was for kids by kids um it has it shows a number of letters from the write-ins that kids were writing into the zoom um uh, staff, um, cause it was encouraging kids to contribute ideas, um, and letters. And I think it's just a really fun, wonderful, uh, exhibit on the first series. But I also want to just mention that there is a difference between the exhibits and the special collections. Um, Alan was talking about the exhibits in particular, which were curated by scholars that, um, are contain material from a number of different collections, potentially different programs, but has a, a theme or a, a scholarly uh, view of what all of these things mean and um, tries to pull some kind of a thematic meaning out of it. We also have special collections, which sometimes group things by a station, by a topic uh, from a certain um, uh, community or consortium. Um, for example, I was looking in the collection to see what we had on Rhode Island, and there is a bird note. We have a collection on bird note, and there is a bird note program on uh, birds in Block Island, which the, someone from the Nature Conservancy talks about, which is kind of cute. Here's that clip from the archive from Bird Note, Birds of Block Island. This is Bird Note, and I'm Dominic Black calling the Nature Conservancy of Rhode Island. If you know the extension of the person, When I asked Scott Cummings about the birds of Block Island, he laughed. Uh, you know, it's fun to talk about stuff you, you love. <laughs> so, Block Island is, like, is 10 miles off the coast of Rhode Island. Scott spent a lot of time there when he was a young person. And he says, it's a magical place. Towards the end of May is still the, the end of the, the songbird migration and the birds are in their alternate plumage. So that's always really fun. Um, to see, and then going into June and July, that's prime nesting season, and we try to keep track of things like barn owl nests and northern harrier nests and piping plovers and other shorebirds. Scott's doing this work day in, day out, as Associate State Director with the Rhode Island Chapter of the Nature Conservancy. So I ask him if there's a bird that still gets him really excited when he sees it. Well, I mean, the the one that's always great to see is uh, is Blackburnian warbler. That's just I just love that bird, and and to see it in the sun is 
is really neat. And I still take a lot of pleasure in th- seeing things like the Northern Harrier. Block Island's the last place that that species nests in the state. Um, pretty much any bird that I, I see, I really, really enjoy. I, it, you know, my favorite probably changes every day. For Bird Note, I'm Dominic Black. So um, we have both special collections, which are not, are more, um, here's a bunch of things either from a station or from a certain collection or about a theme. And then the exhibits, which are much more curated and uh, scholarly. Well, I'm glad to hear that Rhode Island is in there. Even if it's just one thing, (laughs) that's fine. I I did, I did, by, by the way, just a few minutes before we started, I searched for Newport Folk Festival and Newport Jazz Festival. And we do have a, a number of programs that um, uh, feature like the director of the Newport Folk Festival, I think in 2011, we've got that. And um, we've actually got a lot of programs by a person who was on the board of the Newport Jazz Festival and an MC. He, he was Father O'Connor. He was called the Jazz Priest. And we have a collection at uh, of of programs that he hosted from Riverside Radio, which was WRVR in New York City, that he went down and hosted these wonderful jazz programs. Uh, but we know that he also began, he, he was at the beginning of the New York Jazz Festival, at the Newport Jazz Festival. We'd love to get more material from Rhode Island stations, actually. Um, it would be fabulous. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully this episode gets out there and those stations will hear it. <laughs> but that's great that uh, we are included in the archive. Um, and so where can our listeners access these exhibits and the special collections? Um, the website is AmericanArchive.org. Um, and they're accessible there. Um, it's only accessible within the United States. There is a geoblock for outside the United States due to rights issues. Um, and uh, the entire collection, all 150,000 items, are available um, either on location at GBH or on location at the Library of Congress Research Room. Um, but as Alan said, on, close to 100,000 of them are available streaming on the site. Wow. Um, and a little birdie told me that, is it this year, your 10th anniversary? Um, well, depending on how you count birth. <laughs> the 10th anniversary might straddle a couple of years but um we are talking about how to celebrate um we're really hoping to get over that line of 100,000 items in the online reading room for sure um and launching uh, this big digitization project will also be part of our 10th anniversary so we're hoping you know we're, we're thinking about what kind of an event we might have but we haven't got any solid plans at the moment Sure. Well, it's very exciting that it's, you know, been 10 years or give or take, depending on (laughs) when you consider um, the beginning of the archive. So, yeah, congratulations on that. Thank you. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on that you want our listeners to know about? Um, I, I guess, you know, we really would love people to check out the collection and utilize it in education or journalism or just personal interest and uh, let us know what you think.
We are about to launch some primary resource sets for educators to use. Um, we've got four up there right now. We'll have 20 by the end of the summer for sure. Um, so, um, and those are for use in classrooms, either higher ed or high school. Um, and uh, I, we have a, we have a, we have some podcasts also. We have ten podcasts. We're hoping to do a whole other season of that too. We're uh, in the moments of trying to figure out what what that might look like. And um, yeah, if you see us, if anybody sees us at any of the conferences where we're exhibiting, please come up and say hi. Uh, can you think of anything else, Alan? Uh, I would just add that our whole um, archive is keyword searchable. We do transcripts of the audio. So it's keyword searchable. And I would just say, you know, put in some keywords of just anything you're interested in. These programs are fascinating. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, it's it's old programs. It's they're they're dead. They're not worth listening to anymore. But it really makes history come alive to listen. As, as you know, radio, you you have this intimacy listening to people uh, talk to you on the on the radio. Same with with television. It really makes what was going on at the time alive to be there right with people 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 20 years ago, and, and go through what they were going through and listen to them express themselves. We do have, um, as Alan mentioned, we do have transcripts that go along with um, the items that were created by a speech to text tool. Um, so, you, you know, machines don't get all of the audio right all of the time. So we do have a crowdsourcing effort called Fix It. Um, and or fix it plus and uh, would love the public to help us correct those transcripts and it's actually a really good way to focus on listening to something really carefully and um, as opposed to just kind of hanging out and listening to to a video or a tv or a radio show on your computer you, you really have to focus on what they're saying so if people want to help us out fixing those transcripts is a great way to do it Oh, that would be great. Hopefully some of our listeners will take you up on that. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really enjoyed learning about the AAPB and um, it sounds like really fascinating work. Um, so I hope our listeners will visit your website and check out the collections and um, learn something about the past. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, visit www.americanarchive.org, where you can access their streaming content for free. You can also check out the AAPB podcast, Presenting the Past, wherever you find your podcasts or on americanarchive.org or on YouTube. Rhodey Radio is proud to be a resident partner of the Rhode Island Center for the Book and brought to you by library staff and community members all around the Ocean State. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities, an independent affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The Rhode Island Council for the Humanities seeds, supports, and strengthens public history, cultural heritage, civic education, and community engagement by and for all Rhode Islanders. You can find more from Rhodey Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Rhodey Radio and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to help us reach more Rhode Islanders.